And so there's a really nice spending exercise that actually um, originally came from Charlie Ellis and Burton Malkiel um, in a joint book they did, The Elements of Investing, where they talk about if you're going to look at all of your spending, and I use uh, Mint, I use BrightPlan, which is a platform, uh, it's a company that I'm a part of. If you just look at all your expenses over the course of a month, and this is a really good exercise to do with a spouse or loved one, and you go through and you mark um, something as high value, something as low value, and something as middle, and you look at all the low value expenses, you'll be surprised at how many of those expenses don't really align with like what you want to get out of your money. And I think a lot of people talk about cutting expenses like a tragic event, but realistically, it is more about aligning your spending with what you value most. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I get together with Peter Lazaroff, CIO of PlanCorp and author of the new book, Making Money Simple, The Complete Guide to Getting Your Financial House in Order and Keeping It That Way Forever. We talked to Peter about some of the biggest financial and investing mistakes people make and strategies to help avoid those mistakes. From interrupting compound growth, lifestyle creep, market timing, and valuing assets over experiences and other financial missteps, Peter lays out some common sense and practical ways to overcome these issues. Oh, and if you go to peterlazaroff.com slash free book, he'll give the first 50 listeners who sign up a free copy of his book, Making Money Simple. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with PlanCorp's Peter Lazaroff. Hey, Peter. How are you? Thanks for joining us today. Justin, Jack, good to see you guys. Thanks for having me. For those folks that are uh, watching this on YouTube, Peter's probably, I'm guessing, about 10 years younger than I am. <laughs> I'm in my mid-40s. Uh, and... What is I really impressive about um, Peter's career and his trajectory is um, you're actually the CIO of a multi-billion dollar financial planning firm. Um, I think the average, I was trying to do a little research before the podcast. I, I think the average CIO in the, in the industry is somewhere between the age of 50 and 55. Um, so you've got the, uh, the average CEO beat by plenty of years, but I, I thought it would be maybe just, just cool and interesting to sort of hear about your path and how you got to where you are so early in your career. Well, that's a good fact. I, I was unaware of that. So I'm feeling pretty good about where I am. I'm 37 years old. And so I would argue that even when I was promoted up to co-CIO, uh, which I don't know, maybe that was four years ago, something like that. I might've had the technical skill, but I don't know that I had all the other interpersonal skills developed enough. So I will say there was something problematic about getting promoted quickly and being prepared to do the job, but not prepared to handle the people because a lot of stewarding um, a group of people to make a decision is a touchy thing. But uh, you had asked, you know, how, what did the career arc sort of look like? And, and I started in an independent RIA in St. Louis, right out of college, small firm, um, I think there were a couple hundred million when I got there. By the time I left there, 1.2 billion. And because it was a small firm, I got to put my hands on a lot of different things that someone right out of college probably wouldn't have otherwise. And a lot of my career trajectory was defined by writing. You both do incredible writing on your blog. And so I think one of the things that is difficult to appreciate until you're actually doing that writing yourself is how much it helps to clarify 
what you think about the world. And so for me, it was just a lot of note taking and bullet points turned into sentences, sentences into paragraphs. And then all of a sudden I'm emailing people that I know about my thoughts on the economy and markets and what they should do with their financial planning. And by the time I went to PlanCorp, everybody had a blog then. And my prior firm wouldn't let me have a blog. So that was one of a handful of reasons that I departed. But when I finally got to start my own blog, it was just like freedom. And now I have a podcast, The Long-Term Investor. And just like you guys, everybody's consuming content differently. But at PlanCorp, so we manage about $6 billion today for clients across 44 states. I went to PlanCorp as Director of Investment Research. And PlanCorp had been around since 1983. And so it was a really interesting progression from Director of Investment Research to co-CIO to CIO, I think, two years ago, sometime in 2020, I think. Um, and ultimately, stewarding group decision-making, which I think is fascinating to begin with, because we silly humans already make bad decisions by ourselves. We also do even sillier things in groups. So that's that's been a unique challenge and something that I've really enjoyed. That's great. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, with the writing and the content, it's like you're producing it, you're putting it out, and it's sometimes hard to see the end game. But I think um, for you and us too, sort of the writing and the content creation, you know, if you do it long enough, um, you sort of get the benefit of compounding um, in, in, different, in different ways. Yeah. And I think for me, it compounded into a book. Um, <laughs> and I definitely want your listeners to um, we were talking before the show. If, if your listeners go to peterlazaroff.com slash free book, the first 50 people that fill out that form, I will send you a hard copy of my book. Looking back on the bookshelf, there's one back there, um, uh, but I have a box sitting at my real corporate office that uh, I'm happy to send to your readership. But the benefits of that and the benefits of everything over time, it just reaches a bigger and bigger audience. But I think it helps me learn. I don't know how you both feel, but I was the son of a physician and I used to do hospital rounds with him. And he would always talk about the process of learning is one where you see one, then you do one, and then you teach one. And so writing and communicating via YouTube or podcast, that's always been my teach one. And it's something that I find every day there's something else to learn. So as long as there's something to learn, I'll keep being out there teaching. Yeah, good stuff. So we're going to talk about mistakes today. And um, to, to lead into this, I just wanted to sort of bring up, I mean, the Berkshire Hathaway meeting just happened over the weekend. And one of the things that Charlie Munger talks a lot about is avoiding stupid mistakes in life and in investing. Um, and he sort of talks about this in the context of not going too far outside of your circle of competence, because the further you go from that, the more chances you are to make maybe a big mistake that you're not going to be able to recover from. Um, and in your book, Making Money Simple, which you just mentioned, and listening to the interviews and, and, and uh, the article, the interviews you've done, the articles that you've written, you've kind of done a really good job of honing in on where investors tend to make mistakes with their money. So what we thought we'd do with you is um, work through what some of those biggest mistakes are for investors, both in terms of investing and in terms of financial planning. Yeah, sounds great. So the first one I will end this, um, as we were sort of prepping for this, it, this, this first one got me thinking of a conversation that I actually had with one of our clients who was in the entertainment business, really successful guy managing actually musicians out in LA for decades. He's been doing it. Um, and he said to me, and I'm, I kind of paraphrasing here, but he said, if I only spend half, half the time or as much time thinking about my, my investments early on that I did my job, I wouldn't have to worry about his investment. So what he was basically saying to me was that throughout his like entire career, 
he had kind of neglected his own finances. And so that kind of gets to this first point of, and, and you wrote this, not me, but you know, not translating your career success into your financial success, success. So I was wondering if you could just kind of flush that out a little bit more. Sure. Well, when I was working as a lead advisor, now that I'm CIO, I don't carry clients myself, but prior to that progression, I did have a book of business. I went out there and generated business and 85, maybe 90% of the clients I worked with were physicians. And I just mentioned earlier, my dad was a physician. My mom was a nurse practitioner. So that was sort of a sweet spot for me. I knew a lot of those pain points. And one thing that always struck me about doctors is that they make tons of money and they're very smart. But by the time they ever get to me, the advisor, they never have as much money as I would think they should. And a lot of that is because they're not necessarily prioritizing the right things. And you'd said earlier, a lot of investment success comes down to just minimizing mistakes and doing everything in your power to let compound interest go on uninterrupted. And I think what I've come to learn more, you know, we work with a lot of people with equity compensation these days where they're making boatloads of money and they're spending it. Now, some of them feel that they've earned the right to spend this money. That is very true with doctors, particularly those who have student debt, but even someone who's working for a company where they're getting paid in equity and the company is doing well, they feel like they should treat themselves. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't, but when you start making good decisions early, that just has a total, total, uh, complete change over the trajectory that your life will have. And so I think it doesn't take a lot, but when you're going to have a successful career in order to make sure you financially benefit from it, you have to start early. You have to do the little things right and just let them compound for several decades. And it's actually not that hard. And that's a lot of what the book was focused on is just, hey, how can we make this real easy? And I thought about myself, I didn't do anything particularly special with my own portfolio. I just started my career by maxing out my 401ks and my IRAs and saving some into a taxable investing account. And I just kind of sat there and watched it. Actually, I didn't really watch it all. I just let it do its thing. There was no magic formula. I mean, I think a lot of financial success, it isn't magic. It's just simply engineering a system that's going to work for you. Acknowledges some of the human flaws we have. And just instead of trying to eliminate the flaws that we carry as humans, that's a big ask. It's just to embrace those that help you and maybe find little roads around those that don't help you. You know, I could see though, you know, we're in this day in and day out. This is what we do for professionally for our careers, but you know, a busy, uh, physician early in, early in his or her career, I mean, even getting time with, let's say with a family, getting time to think about their finances, it's like probably the last thing they want to do when they get home at night or on the weekend. But, you know, like to your point, do it early, set it up early, get it going early, take a little bit of time and, and invest in it, you know, it could go a long way. Yeah. And I think the sooner that you get help, the better off it's going to be. So like the example I give is, is it's not like rocket science, doing financial planning, doing investment management. Anybody can learn to do it. But if you're doing it on your own, you don't know what you don't know. And I used to mow my own lawn, for example, uh, when I bought my first house, uh, it was in 2010. So I got that home buyer credit. It was amazing. Uh, and it, I wanted to have a big yard. I'd never mowed the lawn, but I went out and bought a mower. I felt like such a man. I'm out there mowing the lawn. It took me like two, two and a half hours the first few times, but then I got the hang of it. It took 90 minutes or so. The challenge with mowing my own lawn was it might be Saturday and a buddy would text me and say, Hey, you want to go play golf? I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll mow the lawn tomorrow. 
and not really even looking at the weather. And then sure enough, on Sunday, it's raining. And then by Monday, I'm back at work and I can't get home until it's already dark. And well, now my grass is growing all out of control. And look, I eventually cut the grass and I never killed the grass. My grass looked fine and I never killed it. I think that's my shining moment. I never killed it and it just looked fine. Now think about that. That's, that's not that great. And I think do-it-yourselfers sometimes have, I'm doing just fine. I like doing it. I'm saving money. So all I know is when I hired somebody for 35 bucks a week, all of a sudden my grass went from looking just fine to looking spectacular because they're cutting the grass in multiple directions. They're cutting it at different lengths depending on where the sunlight is. They're strategically seeding in places. They're edging around bushes. Some stuff of which I knew you're supposed to do but didn't really know how to do. And I really think your financial planning, your investing is the same. There's a lot of stuff that you can do on your own and most do-it-yourselfers are okay with the idea of getting by just fine. They like saving the money. What they don't realize is that someone who is there, the earlier I can reach somebody, the sooner the things I do can start compounding and, and again, totally change the trajectory of your finances. Speaking of the power of compounding, that brings up the second point, which um, or mistake that investors um, can do. And that is, and you sort of hit on this already to some extent, but is, you know, interrupting that compounding growth of their um, investments. And one of the things that I, I always find this statistic really interesting with Warren Buffett, of course, you know, uh, we're, we're talking to very few multi-billionaires, but I mean, 99% of Buffett's net worth that came after the age of 50. And so I just think that's a good example to try, you know, think about like, holy smokes, like that's how much wealth can come. And that's really the power of compounding. Yes, you, you nailed it. Warren Buffett's a great example. And I think people underestimate how powerful being average for a super long period of time can be. And people interrupt compound growth all the time in their investments by trading too much. You know, every time you trade, you've interrupted your compounding. Yes, maybe you're putting money into something else. But when you're making an investment, if you're a trader, your time horizon is shorter. Being a trader is very hard. The odds are stacked heavily against you. If you're strategically investing, you shouldn't need to trade that much. And when you trade, you trigger taxes. Taxes interrupt compounding. Costs interrupt compounding. Ultimately, though, your behavior is the biggest one. So jumping in and out of the market, you, you got to stay invested. I mean, the most important thing you can do is start early and stay invested. I look at my portfolio maybe once a year. And it's just to update my net worth statement. And, uh, you know, I have a really simple portfolio, so that's part of it. And two, my portfolio looks a lot like the portfolios that I manage. So it's not like I have no idea. I'm looking at everybody else's portfolio at the firm. So it's not a complete in the dark moment. But that interruption of compound growth in your investments is a big deal. But also when you go further down the financial planning, like hierarchy of needs, if you don't have the right insurance, that's going to mess you up. You know, if you get disabled, if you become ill and you're out of work for a year or two, that interrupts your compounding. If you don't have some sort of cash reserve or emergency fund and you have to take on debt or you have to stop contributing to your investments because you don't have this bush buffer to, meet, make eats, <laughs> to make ends meet, well, that's going to interrupt your compounding too. So it's not just the portfolio. It's really all areas of your financial life. I've always thought a great, a great example of this was the, the example of Jim Simons versus Buffett. So who's had way better returns in their career? Jim Simons. Yes. Who has way more money? Buffett. And that's just a fact that that's just a matter of Buffett having decades of time on Jim Simons. So that, that's, that's a good example. I try to give people and it's like how, how powerful compounding can be. I love that. That's perfect. Um, the next one is actually one that I made myself. So, uh, 
this this idea that it, it's the American dream. You know, when I when I first when as soon as I can afford it, I go out and I buy that starter home. You know, I, as soon as I can get the down payment, and you know, a lot of times that ends up being not the greatest financial decision. So, can you talk a little bit about why buying a starter home sometimes is not a great idea? Yeah, it's important to say sometimes because even right now in the economy we're in where rent inflation is pretty high, maybe the case for a starter home is a little different. But in general, when you're buying a starter home, you're somewhat saying to yourself, I'm not going to own this home for more than 10 years. And in many cases, it's five or seven. And when you take into consideration all of the costs with closing, with interest, with moving, with decorating and maintaining, you, know, you don't really break even all that often until you've been there for seven years. And even on a typical fixed rate 30 year mortgage, you're not really building up equity until you're there seven years. So in general, my rule of thumb is that if you can't picture a reasonable scenario where you're in the house you're buying for at least 10 years, you probably shouldn't be buying. Now that's not to say that you have to stay there 10 years, but if you know that you're gonna move in three to five years, just know that you're gonna lose money on that transaction. You might get lucky and there's a little bit of price appreciation, but again, there's all these costs that get baked into the sale. Plus, again, the moving, the furnishing. When you buy a starter home, I think the common argument that I hear people make is, well, I'm tired of throwing away money to rent. You know, on the other hand, if you are renting, you're more flexible. Um, and you're not necessarily throwing money away because, again, on a fixed rate mortgage of 30 years, you're basically just paying the bank for seven years. You're not really paying yourself. The other thing that I'll point out is that I have never, ever seen a couple that where one of them or both of them had a house and then they get married where the new spouse actually likes their house. So like you can basically guarantee if you're single and you get married, your spouse isn't going to like that house. Like the first thing they're thinking about is when are we going to sell this house and get <laughs> to a place I want to be? So again, it kind of goes back to that. Can I stay in this house for 10 years? And if you don't stay there for 10 years, you shouldn't feel bad about it. But if like your base case scenario is not, I'm going to be here 10 years and this is what my life looks like. I'd say you should hold off. The other kind of comment that I'll make, and it's, I think people have gotten better about this since the financial crisis when the housing bubble burst, is that the house really shouldn't be viewed as an investment. It's a place to live. You know, if it were an investment, you know, think about how non-diversified it is. It's a bet on one neighborhood in one city, in one country. It's one type of housing. You know, it's not like when you buy a REIT and you get all sorts of different type of real estates. It's indivisible, so it's not like you can like slice off a piece of the kitchen counter and go buy milk. You know, it's just one big asset. Um, and ultimately, long term, like long, long term, housing barely keeps up with inflation, and that's assuming you put money into it to maintain it. So most investments, you know, you don't have to put money into it to make sure that it keeps up with inflation. So you know, in general, I just I think it's fine to own a home that isn't as large. I know I watched a lot of friends buy starter homes. And I was thinking, what are they doing? Because they're married and they knew they want to have kids. I'm like, they're not going to be able to fit a kid in that house. And they have two big dogs and stuff like that. So we made it in our first house uh, eight or nine years. So I didn't quite hit my 10-year benchmark. But when we bought that house, I thought if my career stayed where it was at that time, that I could have raised a family where we were. Um, and ultimately, we did make the move. And you know, anytime you buy that second bigger house, I also don't know a single person who doesn't feel a little financially stressed by that transaction, even if they can clearly afford it it's like the dream versus the reality you know that that's kind of what i fell into it's like i, I really want to own a home and it's a great dream for me and you don't think about oh six percent to sell it on the back side or you know you don't think about any of that stuff you're like let's just buy this thing i'll be in it for a few years and you know then i'll move on to the next one but you're right i mean when you look at the finances behind it 
Like if you're staying in there two to three years, like unless you're in just get lucky and you're in a hot real estate market, you know, usually it just doesn't make sense. Totally agree. Um, the next one I want to ask you about is one that I don't know a lot about, but uh, is one that I, I think I sort of struggled with myself, which is this idea of what buying permanent life insurance when you're very young. Um, you know, I ended up using term insurance because I was counseled that that was probably the way to go. But I think a lot of people do end up buying permanent life insurance when they're pretty young. And you, you listed that as a potential mistake. Yes. And let me give you a little background. In college, I did an internship at a major insurance provider. And it was listed as a top 10 internship in the country. And I'm thinking, hey, I really you know, landed a great job. And in many ways, it was great because I learned a lot about sales. But what we were due is we went through the training and they said, hey, so you want to sell whole life insurance or permanent insurance, the same thing, um, or disability policies. That's where the commissions are. And they kind of quickly referenced term. And when I remember hearing the pitch, it made more sense to me because I was pretty interested in investing at this at this point in my career, or I guess career, I was in college at this point in my life. And when I heard the case for term, I thought, well, gosh, that's a lot more flexible and it's cheaper. But they're like, but you don't want to sell that because it's not the commissions. And then they gave us all these one-liners on how to sell it and how to convince people to buy it. And I did sell one permanent life policy. And I remember seeing the couple I bought or that I sold the policy to a couple of weeks after, and I just felt awful. And I thought, oh God. And ultimately in my book, I, I sort of lay out all the major arguments that an insurance person will make for why you should buy whole life. And a lot of people end up with whole life because it's a good sales pitch. Um, and you get young people who are selling policies. They go down their contact list. They call every single person they know. And when you're young, the policy, the premium is cheaper because you know, if you look at an actuary table and you're 22, yeah, you're less likely to die than someone who's 50 or 60. So yes, the premium is going to be cheaper. But Jack, to your point, your term insurance is all most people need. I mean, like 99% of people, that works great. Unless you have a child with special needs or you have an estate tax liability. And even then I'd argue there are better legal ways to deal with that than... Um, than life insurance, or if it's like a key man agreement at you know business, those are the real use cases for whole life policies. But they're super expensive. Um, people kind of talk about them like they're an investment, but they're not. They're an insurance contract, and you do better as a policy owner when they collect more premiums than they pay out in death benefits, and they call that a dividend. And then they show you a growing cash value, and they say, well, you can tap tap the value of your whole life insurance policy. The thing is that you're taking a loan from yourself, but if you ever don't pay it back, it's taxable income. And so a lot of people fall into this trap. Again, it is cheaper. You'll see a lot of people buy policies on their babies. You know, hey, you're hedging against their future insurability. Really at the end of the day, I think everybody needs life insurance. You need to protect those. If you have someone who uh, would really be in trouble because you're not there. You get term insurance. It's very cheap. And then at a certain point, you don't need it anymore. Your kids go to college or you have enough money to retire or your mortgage is paid off or any combination of those. And then the contract's over. And yes, you will not have anything to show for it at the end. But if you were to theoretically save the difference between your premiums and a whole life policy or term policy, there'd be a whole lot left over to show at the end. Yeah. And also for me, you know, that with, with term, I mean, you have, you have, a certain high risk period, you know, for me, like when my kids were born is when I did it. And, you know, if you take a 20 year policy, then you have a, you know, getting your kids through college is sort of a high risk period. I mean, obviously you want protection beyond that, but that was kind of what got me 
you know, onto the term side is I wanted to protect a certain period. And, you know, term is surprisingly cheap when you're, when you're that young, um, you know, it's really not very costly. Yeah. And I'm with you. I mean, I, I basically think about my mortgage and the kids getting through college. And once they get through college, if my wife has enough to retire in my death, then yeah, there's no need for insurance beyond that. And so 20 year terms, are pretty typical by, uh, you know, price point that a lot of people who just had kids will, will target. There are some term policies where the premiums escalate over time, which eventually that becomes a bad deal. But if you're not totally sure to temporarily hold a policy like that, you can do that too. Keeping uh, with the theme of focusing on all the mistakes Jack has made in his no. life, um, the next one is another one because uh, once, I, once I made a little bit of money, I'm like, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna buy a boat. That sounds like a great sound decision. And it, and it turns out from a financial perspective, a boat is not a very good sound decision. But uh, I'm wondering if you could talk about this idea of lifestyle creep and may, maybe some things you've seen people do to, to sort of avoid it because it's so tempting as more money comes in to just have that money go right back out the door. So what have you learned about maybe some ways to deal with that? Well, the first thing is that you have, you find a friend with a boat and then you don't own the boat. You know, it's always good to have a friend with a boat. Um, the thing about lifestyle creep is it happens to all of us and a little bit of lifestyle creep is not necessarily a bad thing. So imagine you know, you got your hand in a pot of lukewarm water and you start heating it up a little bit. Your hand isn't going to notice the temperature change all that much initially. And eventually, like if the water's boiling and bubbling, like, yeah, you'll be like, oh my God, this is really hot. Then it burns you. But regardless of how far you get into that heating up your hand exercise, if you take your hand out and dunk it in a bowl of ice water, you're definitely going to notice that temperature change. And so think of lifestyle creep as this sort of heating up your hand. And if it gets out of control and your expenses are out of control, you got to dunk your hand in ice water. It's not going to feel good. And yeah, I probably should have defined lifestyle creep as I've said the word at least 15 times now. It's just, lifestyle creep is just the idea that you're spending a little bit more as you are earning more throughout your life. And most of your pay raises are going to come in your 30s and 40s, like the biggest ones. And then your peak earnings is typically going to be in your 50s. And so you want to try to make sure that every time you get a raise, you don't spend it all. Because individually, the sort of little things that we that we adopt into our lifestyles, individually, they're not that big a deal. Whether it's buying a slightly nicer bottle of wine or bourbon at the liquor store or slightly better seats at a sporting event or, or a show or you know, an impulse buy on Amazon or slightly nicer birthday gifts or upgraded travel or whatever. Like individually, none of this is that big of a problem, but collectively, all of a sudden you're spending way more than you used to. And kids, kids are the ultimate lifestyle creep. And my experience is that when I watch clients send their kids to college, they always say, well, we're going to just have all this extra money to save. And they do save some, but they end up spending it. When you have extra money, suddenly out of the, just something about the way we humans are, we, we spend it. And so I think the best way you get around lifestyle creep is to automate as much as possible. So whether that's just setting up automatic deposits and setting them to auto increase, that's fine. Um, if you look up the definition of automation, it doesn't have to be technological. I mean, having an advisor who's going to sit there and be like, okay, you got all this extra money. Here's what we're going to do. The act of outsourcing is the automation. And so anything that you can do to automate your finances, that's probably going to be the best cure for lifestyle creep. If you save the bonus before you've ever had it, or if you save these pay increases before you've ever had it, you're never going to miss it. Um, more realistically, I, I see people maybe save half a raise and spend half a raise, but what you're doing when you're planning for retirement, or at least financial freedom, the ability to retire, 
is you got to be able to save to maintain this lifestyle. So unless you have a big lifestyle cutback, which is sort of like dunking your hand in cold water, you need to make sure you're saving enough to meet that lifestyle. And as the lifestyle is growing, you have to save even more. So again, it kind of goes back, and I'm a broken record, the importance of starting early. Those, those early years of saving are going to make such a big difference. And the automation point is so important because there's so many things you can do to automate your finances that I think a lot of people don't even realize. You know, you might pay your mortgage automatically or something like that, but, you know, treat your kid's college education just like the mortgage. Have it come out directly. You know, your retirement, have it come out directly. Your emerging, emergency fund, have it come out directly. Like, you can almost get to a point where automation makes it hard for you to make a mistake. And, and I think that's a key point as well. Yeah, and I, I sort of think of it like the reverse of a traditional budget. I mean, I call it reverse budgeting, where you basically have all your goals and you say, okay, you know, in the next five years, I want to do these things. I want to max out retirement accounts. I want to go on this big vacation. I want to buy this car and I want to send Cindy to college. And you, know, you take those goals. What are they going to cost over the next five years? So if it maxing out retirement's $20,000, let's say, it's $100,000 over five years. You get all the other goals. You divide them by 60, so 60 months and five years. And that's what you do. You just automate all those savings, automate them, automate them, automate them. And to your point, something like saving for your kid's college, if you pay for your kid's college completely out of pocket once they get there, it does actually make it much harder to continue the habit of saving because if you've been saving for college for them all along, that's money you've never really had. Same goes for retirement. The more that you save, the less you spend. Obvious, sure. But I think if you keep expanding your lifestyle, it really just pushes the date at which you have enough financial security to retire. It just keeps pushing it further and further out. So anything you can do helps. And I know at least when I started my career, you could automate a little bit, but to your point, Jack, yeah, there's so much you can automate now. And there's a lot of auto increases that used to have to be manual. Now you can just build those into your plan right away. This next one, it sort of picks up on something you talked to Justin about, but it, it's such a huge issue that I want to make sure we, we cover it again, which is this idea that, you know, right now, for instance, we're in high inflation. You know, there's tons of worries in the market. There's a war in the Ukraine. You know, a lot of clients come during a period like this and they say, you know what, I've got to stand. I just want to sit in cash for a little bit. You know, I, I can't possibly overcome, like, how could the market possibly go up with all this out there? And so this idea of market timing and thinking, you know, knowing what we know now that we should take some sort of action to, to reduce like the exposure in our portfolio, you know, it always tends to come back to hurt people. And so I'm wondering, you know, and you may not work with clients directly now, but is there anything you've learned in your career in terms of some things you can do to help people in a period like that where they're thinking, all right, you know, everything is negative, I need to sell? Yeah. So while I don't work with clients on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm often in, brought into conversations when people are about to do something that they really shouldn't do. And so this is a conversation that I feel like we have all the time for all sorts of different reasons. Uh, there's even a presentation that I give to corporations and to universities called Navigating Uncertain Markets. I have been giving that presentation since 2008 because the markets are always uncertain. You know, what's in the content of the presentation is always the same, but there's always uncertainty. So that's really not going to change. And I think the best thing you can do is setting the expectation for losses in advance. Um, so in the moment, what you do is you sort of go back over some of those expectations that you hopefully set. But if those expectations that losses are totally normal or timing the market's going to be difficult, you know, then you're doing education on what has happened before. So Right now, um, when we're recording this, the S&P 500 is down about 14%. And well, you know what the median drawdown, the average drawdown, entry year drawdown is in the S&P 500 historically? It's 13.5%. So, hey, this is super normal. And that's, I think, where you start, you know, baseline 
put it into context within history, I always talk about telling clients versions of the truth to get them to do what they're supposed to do. Now, some people hear that I've been told, and it sounds like I'm saying you lie to them. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying everybody has to hear a different version of the truth to have it click and say, yes, I can't do that. And with market timing, you have to get it right more than once. So let's say you have a client who wants to get out of the market. You say, okay, why? And they'll explain it to you. And maybe you point out that, hey, those things are probably already reflected in prices, if not entirely, then somewhat. And, oh, hey, this is how markets work. This is how market prices work. So by you saying this, you're sort of suggesting that you're smarter than the collective knowledge of all the traders out there in the world. You know, sometimes that will resonate, but if it doesn't, then you kind of continue down the path. Okay, so let's say this happens. How are we going to know when to get back in? So you have to get it right on the way out. You have to get it right on the way in. And then, oh, by the way, what are the tax implications, if any? The other thing that I would say is really helpful is for people to see if they have a financial plan that takes downturns into account or volatility into account, well, we don't need to predict when and why. We can just plan on them. And I know at least for our financial planning and most advisors who are using financial planning software, they're going to have plans that are assuming that market downturns are going to occur with a similar magnitude and frequency as they have in the past. And so if we know that and we've built a portfolio around the idea that, hey, we're going to have downturns like this. Hey, we're going to have periods of inflation like this. Hey, we're going to have periods of rising interest rates like this. This is why we built the portfolio this way. Sort of the re-education of why you do these things. What's really difficult, in my opinion, is delivering that message at just the right time. So sometimes you have a client who doesn't look at their portfolio ever and the market's down 20%. And so you send out an email to the world, letting them know that the market's down 20%, just so that you can tell them to stay the course. And then that person thinks, oh my God, I wasn't even aware that the world is seemingly crumbling according to my advisor. And so I think that's that's sort of the balance that's always difficult to strike. I do think the fact that there are podcasts and YouTube channels and and there's just all these different ways of communicating where they'll eventually find if they need it. But education is always going to be the key in trying to prevent market timing. Um, one more quick thing on like the education piece is there's a couple examples I gave in the book and there's been a few more examples published since that I think are really good. One is Ben Carlson um, over at Ritholtz Wealth Management. In his book, A Wealth of Common Sense, he has Bob, the world's worst market timer. And it kind of goes through this progression of this guy who only invests at market peaks and how does he do over the long run? And he does fine because Bob never sells. He always puts his money in at the worst time, but he never sells. And because he never sells, he does pretty darn well. Um, there's also a Peter Lynch study that sort of looks at, hey, if you invested at the peak of each month, the midpoint of each month and the bottom, or no, it's each year, the peak of each year, the midpoint or uh, the January 1st of each year or the absolute low of each year, how did you do? And the difference between investing at the peak versus the, the, the low was only like a percent and a half. So it's not even... You know, we know that we can't time the market. The reward is not that great. And, and Schwab this year just put out another similar thing, but way more involved, um, ultimately showing the same thing that basically you should always just invest your money. If you have a lump sum, just get it in the market. It doesn't matter. It wins almost every single period, averaging into the market out of a couple rolling 10-year periods, uh, ended up beating it, but it was lump sum investing was still number two. So with market timing, again, I think people, and, and obviously those who listen to your show are a pretty educated group. You know, you gotta realize that you're not smarter than everybody and it's really hard to get these things right consistently. So market timing, 
the fact that you have to get it right twice alone, to me, that's the biggest reason not to do it. If you only had to get it right twice, it's, or excuse me, only get it right once, that makes it a little more palatable. It's still a bad idea, but gosh, twice? Uh, if we're got a 50-50 chance of getting it right, you know, and you flip a coin heads twice in a row, that means you have a 25% chance of getting it right. You know, and, you know, if you somehow have a third decision there, you have to flip heads again. You know, the, the probability of success just keeps going down every time you have to make a choice. Yeah, you know, and a good a good example is March 2020, because if, if there was ever a reason to panic, you know, March 2020 was the reason to panic. And, you know, if you look at the returns the market's produced since then, um, you know, that, that's always a good example of why, you, you know, you just can't you can't time these things. I mean, it seems obvious at the time, but, you know, in, in retrospect, you, know, you, you just can't figure it out in the way you think you can. Um, the next one you, you were talking about in an interview I listened to with you, and, and this was this was an interesting one to me, um, this idea of not aligning your spending with your values. So how have you seen people do that? Well, I think that sometimes when you think about how much you spend, and I both budget and track my spending. So budgeting is the process of kind of looking forward, tracking your spending is kind of the process of looking backwards. Sometimes you look and you think, how the heck did we spend all this money? And Amazon is one of the primary culprits for us because when I track the spending, I just see a line item that says Amazon, Amazon, Amazon. And then if I scroll through the orders, I'm like, well, did we really need that? And so there's a really nice spending exercise that actually um, originally came from Charlie Ellis and Burton Malkiel um, in a joint book they did, The Elements of Investing, where they talk about if you're going to look at all of your spending, and I use uh, Mint, I use Brightplan, which is a platform, uh, it's a company that I'm a part of. If you just look at all your expenses over the course of a month, and this is a really good exercise to do with a spouse or loved one, and you go through and you mark... Um, something is high value, something is low value, and something is middle, and you look at all the low value expenses, you'll be surprised at how many of those expenses don't really align with like what you wanna get out of your money. And I think a lot of people talk about cutting expenses like a tragic event, but realistically, it is more about aligning your spending with what you value most. So not only going through an exercise like that, not only is it helpful, but if you go through the process of setting some goals, and earlier I'd mentioned the reverse budget, like what do we want to do in the next five years? And you divide all those goals by 60, and then you know you need to save each month. Well, if you don't have enough, then go through this exercise and see, well, what can we cut? Like, aren't these our goals? Are our goals to buy some random thing on Amazon or to go to the ice cream store every single day? I mean, I, we took the kids to get ice cream and this is part inflation, but it used to be this bad too. Like my ice cream was $7, just mine. And so here I take the family to get ice cream. It's almost 30 bucks. Like, I mean, I'm all for family experiences, but I would have been happy going to the grocery store, picking out a carton that everyone, or three cartons for that matter, and just letting people go nuts. I realize that's not what the experience is all about, but just to kind of drive home the point, like you value things differently. And because the way that we spend money happens so easily these days, whether it's one click buying or just the act of using a credit card or cash, I'm worse with cash. You give me cash, it's gone. It's like not real money. Somehow cash is not real money to me. I will spend it without a second thought. Whereas on a credit card, I'm like, huh, oh, because I look at the cell phone and I see what I spent. Whereas the cash, I don't even remember where I spent my cash last. So kind of trying to be more intentional with our spending, trying to slow down things. And the goals are set with a long-term mindset. Every spending decision is really focused on your current self. And there are um, some, some uh, studies that show kind of like the brain patterns that when we think about saving, 
the brain patterns are the same as giving away money to a complete stranger. So we do not respect our future selves at all. We're always going to prioritize the spending our current selves. And I think just kind of going through some of these practices can better help align that future self with the current self. The last one before I hand it back to Justin is one you sort of just touched on a little bit, which is this idea of experiences. And, you know, I think if you ask someone, if you said you could have two choices, you could drive a Porsche every day, or you could go on two great vacations every year. I bet most people are going to pick the first one, but I bet most people are going to be happier with the second one. So can you, can you talk about this idea of experiences versus things? Yeah, tons of research showing that the lasting happiness from an experience dwarfs that of material items. So it's not to say that material items don't make you happy. It's just that when you're on your deathbed, you won't remember your iPhone 14 or whatever. Um, and so when you have a lot of the reason that experiences, and we'll use travel, it's a really easy one to relate to. There's the period leading up to the travel where you're doing the planning. Some people will say that the, the process of planning the travel actually brings you more joy than the travel itself. So you're going through all these things and you're thinking about it. And then when you reflect back later, you have these memories and these emotional connections that were those that were the result of this experience. So whether it's going on a, a vacation of any kind or an extravagant date night or going to a concert or a sporting event, those experiences are things that you are more likely to remember than any given gadget that you've owned or any, I, I say gadgets, I, I don't, I, I buy golf clubs and gadgets, I guess. Um, those, those are my spending categories. My wife buys clothes. There's no article of clothing I own that makes me happy. They are all just pure utility items. And so I think this, again, there's a lot of research there. If given the choice, and this is helpful when setting goals, if, if you have to prioritize different goals, you might give a little more weight to those experiential ones. Again, it's not to say don't save up to buy a new home theater or whatever it is on your goal. It's just if, if there's a tiebreaker, I think that that's something worth giving the extra vote to. What I loved about what we just, what Peter just did was kind of work through all these like challenges or mistakes, but you know, you kind of address really practical solutions, I think, to how to overcome these things. Um, some of this stuff I might have to start implementing in my household. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I gave my kids an allowance. My oldest kid is nine and I gave him an allowance when he was four because he asked for it. And so naturally I read multiple books on giving kids allowance. And that has been a wonderful experience. I can tell he has my money personality where he doesn't want to spend his money. He wants to save it. He's sort of starting to understand what investing is now that I'm relating it to companies that he's familiar with. Now, my second son who just turned five started an allowance when he was four. He was totally not ready. You go through all these things, but it does allow us at least as a family to have some conversations because here's the thing about money is none of us got real money education in school. And... There's actually research that shows that people become overconfident by what they learn in school with money. So maybe it's not such a good thing to do. I don't know. I mean, that's not my level of expertise, but ultimately the, what you learn is what your parents teach you. And so for all of you listening who are parents, talk to your kids about money. You don't have to be a money expert yourself. And if you don't know the answer, you can say, well, you know, let me get back to you. I, I, I want to make sure I explain it in a way that makes sense. So you are your kid's ultimate money teacher. Um, you know, it's sort of up to you. And we are, you know, the, the three of us here are trying to teach all of you listening about different aspects of money and investing. And that's fine to all do. But ultimately, it's, it's on yourself to get it. Schools, nobody's there to, to hand you the education at any point in life. Sure. Um, as we kind of come into the um, end here, I wanted to kind of 
have you put maybe your CIO hat on uh, for the last few questions. Um, actually talk about what you're really doing with your, uh, you know, your job, I guess, day to day, although you're doing a lot of different stuff, I understand. Um, so what are your, it's, it seems to me like, you know, you're both, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, obviously low fee investment products, very important for your client portfolios. Uh, that probably needs a lot of, you know, passive broad market type of, um, exposure. Cause that's some of the cheapest stuff. And by the way, that's great for mo the vast majority of investors, but how do you think about, or where do you incorporate, if at all, active strategies for your clients' portfolios? We're entirely active on the bond side and on the stock side, you're right. We're typically a more, what you would call passive or quant driven approach where we have some total market exposure, but then we supplement that with factor exposures. On the bond side though, you know, the math behind active management is a little bit different. Um, also, I think particularly in today's bond market, paying the lowest fee isn't always going to net you the best outcome. So I think in any instance, fees, you know, keeping low fees are super important. In isolation, you do sometimes miss things. Like if there's something of value that you can get out of paying a higher fee, then by all means, with bonds right now, you're going to have the lowest returns in a decade. You know, this, these 2020 decade is going to be the lowest returns in bonds since like the forties or fifties, just based on where starting yields are today. And to me, it's the most fascinating part of the market because it's a place that portfolio theory would suggest is designed for safety. And yet there is a whole generation that knows it as a part of the portfolio that is for return. And you know, for a, a lot of the work that I'm doing today is focused on the fixed income allocations not as much for the stock heavy portfolios, but for those dom bond dominant portfolios. Uh, I, I would also argue that a lot of people are looking for things like inflation protection, but we already had the inflation event. So it's like, would you buy home insurance for the first time if your roof were on fire? Like it's gotta be fully priced. You know, it's, and so I think those are sort of the places, active managers in the bond space, the, as long as you understand the process, we have different managers playing in different parts of the curve or in different sectors. But ultimately, I think if you're truly a bond dominant portfolio, it also helps to have somebody perhaps who's less constrained, if totally unconstrained. Um, you sort of uh, hit on this with your ice cream inflation example, but uh, um, clearly inflation's all around us. I mean, we're all, we're seeing it everywhere on the ice cream store, at the gas pump, at the, wherever you go, the prices are up just across the board. Um, but are you, is, is that at all influencing how you're positioning clients' portfolios? Have you made any adjustments in the, in the wake? I mean, obviously this active bond, you know, looking for active bond strategies, that's perhaps an adjustment. Maybe you've always done that. I don't know, but are you thinking about sort of your firm's investment portfolios and models differently in this regime or how does that look for you guys? Yeah, we have always been active on the bond side. I think the finding at least a portion of the bond portfolio to be more unconstrained is a little bit related to inflation, but is probably more so related to just where we are with interest rates. Of course, the two are a little bit related. So um, I would, it's interesting. I was talking to one of our institutional clients who we were presenting to the board last night and inflation comes up and it comes up in a lot of uh, you know professional meetings or people who are retirees, but everybody seems to forget this decade plus of inflation below 2%. And when you think about what averages are made of, they're made up of 
inputs above and below the average. And so if I look at five year, the past five years of inflation or the past 10 years of inflation, we're still averaging well below 3%. And market expectations for five-year inflation, I believe are 3.2% a year and 10 years, 2.8% a year. So like, I don't see anything that justifies changing the portfolio personally. Now, some of that is because we're pretty short duration bonds at the moment, and we have been for a very, very long time. That is not really a market call. It's just a preference of emphasizing safety over return in that slice of the pie. But short duration bonds and cash actually do really well in inflationary environments. And if you're going to directly hedge something, people often jump quickly to tips, but tips are pretty volatile and inflation's not very volatile. And you know, if you're trying to hedge something, you would like them to have similar levels of volatility. But also, you know, as you guys know, tips have a big component of future expectations and surprises of inflation. So it's going to be a more volatile asset than most people want. I think that stocks are always going to be your best inflation hedge. And so the math behind it, to me, I think you could look at the data and, and come up with a different response. But I feel like if you have 30% stocks, you have enough inflation protection. You have plenty to offset long-term inflation. I'm making some broad statements because people's objectives could be a little bit different. But ultimately, what I see is, okay, we got elevated inflation. I would argue that the economic data right now shows that peak inflation may have already happened. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to just drop right back down to three. I think you decelerate pretty slowly. You know, if we're at four or 5% for a while, is that the end of the world? No. I mean, I don't necessarily want it, but you know, someone who's a homeowner with a mortgage and someone who has a loan out for my stake in Plant Corp. And you know, I, have a, I have a lot of debt. Inflation's great. If you own a house, you're doing fine. Stocks return less in inflationary environments, but they still return something. So this is a really long-winded way of, I don't see reasons to make a change. I would like to think that we design the portfolio for periods of high inflation and low inflation. Not that they're going to do well in both, but just acknowledging that they both happen and that long-term averages will play out over the long term. No, that's fair. That's that's a good uh, good response. I think. Um, are you at all when you look at the market's current valuation today? It's it's a little bit more attractive than it was at the beginning of the year. But you look at the market's valuation, expected future returns at a most you know large shops, Vanguard, um, those firm, Morningstar, the types of you know firms that estimate those seven to ten year returns, which they're mostly below the historical average for equities. Um, and then you look at where bond yields are today, you know, this idea that the 60, 40, you know, probably isn't going to deliver the types of returns it has, let's say in the past 10 or 20 years, I think is, you know, is you don't know for sure, but it's, you can make a good case that it's going to be below what it's done and maybe below the historical average for the last 40 years, just given what bonds have done. Like you said, bonds have been, you know, adding significant returns to that type of, that type of 60, 40 allocation. But are you at all, I'm just curious, like when you, when you're thinking about whether or not you agree with that, A, but that B, uh, I guess if you do agree with it, um, are you having any conversations with clients around lower expected returns, lower safe withdrawal rates, higher savings rates? Uh, what I'm really trying to get at is how does that sort of manifest itself into how you're advising clients, not on the portfolio construction level, but more like their own behavior? When it's it a great question. Yeah, great question. So saying 60-40 is dead is catchy and easy. I don't think it's dead, but to your point, it's going to, it, I'm expecting it to deliver a much lower return. 
And there are some different things that you can do in response to that. You said not to talk about portfolio construction, but I'll only quickly say some people's answer is, hey, well, let's just add alternatives. I think if the reason to do that is to improve diversification and as a result, lower overall volatility for the return you're earning and as a result, have better compounding, fine. It's a really long-winded way to say, like, if you're just saying, hey, it's just going to add return. I don't know, because what do you do when expected returns go up? Do you just ditch your, your alternative allocation? I'm not totally sure. But from a planning perspective, we're trying to talk to people about 20 years, if not 30 or 40. So if you're 60, we're going to be planning for you to live to age 95. I And you know most of our financial planning models, I think one thing that we do differently than a number of other firms who even use the same software is we focus on real returns, not nominal. So it's just if we don't have to predict what inflation is, it's one less variable we have to predict. 30-year returns don't deviate that much from their long-term real averages. Um, and so it's all about time horizon. And I think what we do is we acknowledge returns are expected to be lower over the next 10 years. Um, there's a chart that I've been doing for a really long time where it shows just the steady long-term real return. And then like how one year real returns fluctuate and how five years and then 10 and then 20 and 30. And they each keep kind of narrowing in towards that, that average line. That's really the story that we're telling is, Hey, we're doing this for 30 years. We're not expecting great returns, but it's better than trying to wait for a downturn. We do have some people, you know, when we are a family office, we'll do private investments in that space, but it's not just about return enhancement. Again, I, I'm more of a believer in the diversification case for that. The type two air that you can kind of experience from adding it for return purposes, uh, you know, it, it's it's significant enough for me that I get a little turned off by it. So we have a standard closing question here on the podcast. I don't know. Do you have a standard closing question? Yeah, mine is, with, yeah. I always end with, what does it mean to you to be a long-term investor? Oh, my okay. Podcast, the long-term investor. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, ours is kind of the same question, just worded very differently. So, so ours is uh, based on your experience uh, in the markets and the research that you do. If you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? I would say to keep it simple. If any investment or financial planning conversation is going to hone in on a theme, it's going to be keep it simple. For me, here I manage $6 billion, but yet I, in my own portfolio, only use a single mutual fund. It's 100% uh, global equities. It's got some factor tilts. Could I do better? Yeah, maybe. But I know that the key to success is just minimizing mistakes and not interrupting compounding. I don't have to check my portfolio. And honestly, I don't take care of myself. We take care of our clients. There's no time to do my own stuff. So that's another piece of it too. But I think all too often people assume that something as complex as financial markets requires a complex solution. And, and it really doesn't. Life is complex enough find ways to simplify, you know, shrink the number of accounts, shrink the number of holdings, simplify your finances, automate as much as possible. Those are all things that you can do to simplify. So wherever, whenever in doubt, choose the simpler option. Great, dear. Thank you. This has been an awesome conversation. Um, tons of good wisdom, practical, I think, stuff that investors, uh, you know, can, can sort of learn and actually do for the, their own portfolios and their own investments. So Thank you very much for joining us. If, if you want to drop that, that link again uh, for the book and where else, you know, what is that? And where else can people go to learn more about you, your firm? Sure. So um, peterlazaroff.com slash free book. I got a box of 
books in my office. They're $30 if you go on Amazon to buy them, but I will send the first 50 people a copy for free. Um, if you want to listen to the podcast, it's thelongterminvestor.com. You can also find me on YouTube at Peter Lazaroff. My website's Peter Lazaroff. I'm Peter Lazaroff everywhere, social media, anything that, that you could type my name into, you'll probably find me. Uh, but I appreciate you guys having me. This is great. And you know, I can't wait to do it again. You guys will have to come on my show. So everyone who's listening, you know, will have to come listen to you guys talk to me for a little bit. Sounds good. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.